0: Andrea has been a super partner for the AML community for a number of years in her previous role, the Charity and Security Network, and now with Interaction, and uh, really brought a lot of information to our community to better understand the, both the challenges that humanitarian groups and charities have, but also how we can better appreciate each other's obligations and sort of work within it. So I um, really want to Thank you, Andrea, for all your work previously, and Katie, um, I'm excited to have you here today. We obviously talked offline a bit about this, but here's what I'd like to get accomplished today. One of the things that you folks have mentioned and written about and advocated and very successfully is the recent general licenses from OFAC. And that's, to me, it seems to be a really good example of a, finally, at least a success certainly a good, I think, a major success, and you'll tell us the specifics of that, um, to to the overall, I don't want to say challenge, but the overall problems that your community faces. And while I'm well aware of them now, based on all our work with you, Andrea, I I wonder if you wouldn't mind two things. Explain what interaction is. Give us a thumbnail sketch of your organization and this broad issue of financial access, de-risking, and how uh, the direct impact it has, uh, both in conflict zones and other areas around the world.
1: Thanks so much, John. And before I dive into those topics, I just would be remiss if I didn't elevate the fact that you've been a huge champion for NGOs and nonprofit organizations around this, this issue. for close to a decade, I think, and instrumental in bringing forth the stakeholder dialogue that we had back in 2017-2018 with ACAMS and the World Bank. Um, And so I just want to thank you too for helping to facilitate conversations like this and bring stakeholders together.
0: Very Um, kind. thank you, go ahead.
1: Interaction is the largest alliance of US-based nonprofit organizations or NGOs in the US doing humanitarian aid and development work in some of the neediest areas around the globe. Um, so when you think of places like Somalia or Syria or Yemen, um, we're very difficult, complex environments, but huge, huge swaths of people in desperate need of food, shelter, water, um, education, um, preventing gender-based violence, things like that are uh, are what our members are doing. Um, and so I've really enjoyed my year so far with interaction. It's been a great opportunity and uh, and just a great place to work, a great team with people like Katie. Um, but More specifically to the bank de-risking issue, you know, uh, NGOs did raise the alarm close to a decade ago. And over the past 10 years, this has really been a story of how far we've come in our engagement with the U.S. government, particularly U.S. Treasury. It's really been a 180 in that evolution of that relationship. And um, as you know, in 2017, Charity and Security Network put out that empirical data. Um, showing that fully two-thirds of U.S.-based nonprofit organizations that were trying to send money abroad were having some sort of difficulty at that time. And it remains the only empirical data. Some may say, well, that's six years old, but I think it's still very relevant. And we continue to rely and look back on that. Um, And one of the things that it pointed out in there was that when banks or financial institutions feel the need to what we call de-risk their clients. Um, NGOs don't de-risk their beneficiaries, so they'll come up with workarounds, and unfortunately, sometimes these are very expensive or even dangerous, and that empirical study showed that I think it was 40-some-odd percent had resorted to carrying cash at some point. Katie can tell you about that. She's been Um, The NGO worker with the backpack full of cash going across the border before. um, I personally don't think I could do that, um, but that's what happens. And so we had emphasized the need to Treasury to get this money back into the transparent financial channels, regulated channels, so that everybody could know that there was traceability and money wasn't falling into the wrong hands. And as we saw, what a year or so ago, Treasury did um, actually acknowledge in writing that cash carry is a risk and de-risking poses its own risks and so everybody's going to be better off in the long run if we can get things working as they're intended um, through that process so um, as i mentioned with the, the stakeholder dialogue we brought people together we had some conversations you and i put out that great consortium document i think it was in 2018 and um, we've just continued to evolve with treasury
0: that's great. And um, Katie, one of the things, and you obviously live this, so you understand, but one of the things that we in the AML community didn't quite grasp, and we do a lot better than we ever did before, is to the extent that um, there are challenges and perceptions real or imagined with humanitarian groups, The one of the struggles for banks is to understand what's the due diligence that humanitarian groups do um, so so that our, our, you know, the community's comfort level can be raised, knowing that there's a lot of things that the banks have to do. So that consortium document that Andrea uh, mentioned was one that was designed high level to say, here's what we need, and then here's what you need, and so we can try to figure it out. But you guys uh, put together, and you've done that in the consortium document, but you've done a recent paper back in February um, counterterrorism sanction t- title, and it's risk management and due diligence measures. I thought it was a really good, it's short, but very succinct on what um, your world, what your folks already do. And that almost always makes it easier for law enforcement and regulators to better understand why the banks are banking these entities and for the banks to have that cover level. So give us a sense of the, the due diligence and some of the specific examples that You've included in that paper.
2: Thanks, John, and um, thanks again for for having me. So this is a really good question, um, and it's it's one that, you know, frankly speaking, the NGO community um, hasn't always been good at in terms of explaining very specifically the different due diligence measures that that the community takes. This has been for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, uh, most notably safety and security, right? Like, why would you hold up all of your cards when you're working in these these high risk in environments? Um, but we recognize that we need to be doing more education um, around the the mechanisms that we um, follow to you know develop better relationships with financial institutions to address the the de risking problem set. So first, I'd say um, it's really important to understand that humanitarians, um, humanitarian o- NGOs included, we follow a principled approach. To humanitarian action. Um, and so that means, um, we are independent, we are impartial, we are neutral, um, and we are guided by humanity. Um, what that does is that means that we working in these very risky politicized contexts are not viewed, are not perceived, and in reality treated as affiliated with one party to the conflict or another, right? We're just there as, as people trying to reach people in need, wherever they're at, how they define, um, how they would like, um, you know, their assistance, um, for themselves. So as it relates to due diligence and I will point out that the Syria um example has been a real big game changer in terms of NGO and the broader humanitarian communities increased due diligence mechanisms and um has resulted in um, significantly more investment in risk enterprise risk management um, uh, d- you know, due to um, a number of different um, factors as it relates to the Syrian conflict. So in terms of NGO due diligence, what what do we do? um for example, so, First of all, just to point out, we have a vested interest in making sure that the money that we receive from institutional donors, from private donors, from philanthropy reaches intended beneficiaries um, without, you know, interference waste fraud and abuse, um, diversion and manipulation um, and, and what have you. So just to underscore that that is the number one or a number one priority for NGOs. Um, so very practically speaking, and you do reference the, the four pager that we put out that I believe will be listed on the resources um, sheet for this web page. But I'll just give you a, a quick kind of snapshot of, of some of those examples. Um, And so, uh, you know, everything from looking at appropriate beneficiary selection. So what that means is um, staff members, um, oftentimes those from local communities are going out in areas of need and looking and interviewing and speaking to communities to assess, okay, well this household um you know it, you know there's a school teacher and and you know a, a doctor in this household but they have been you know without food water um etc um, okay so you know they require humanitarian assistance and doing this very diligently to identify the beneficiaries that should be receiving humanitarian aid we use biometrics um for example um and you know a lot of other more technologically savvy options than you know that existed you know, even, even 10 years ago. So just to make sure. That whoever is receiving the assistance is indeed the intended beneficiary. We've also developed out significant accountability measures and community feedback mechanisms. The community feedback me- mechanisms are very critical because we are from and we live with communities that are in humanitarian need, particularly local and national staff. Um, and so their feedback, their acceptance is absolutely critical. And they'll be the ones to say, ah, watch out for this, you know, kind of watch out for that. So that community feedback me- mechanism is, is quite important. You know, other examples of due diligence um, measures, internal and external reporting um, are, are reporting to our institutional donors. Um, for example, USAID BHA, you know, has just expanded over the years to become, you know, quite frankly, as detailed as as possible. So donors know what we're doing um, and we are reporting, um, you know, any kind of incident in the full interest of transparency um, uh, because I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, you can't—it's—it's—you can't separate humanitarian and human need from from conflict. Um, other examples: um, internal audits and, and investigation mechanisms, third-party screenings. Um, we we also do just a lot of education and awareness within the NGO community and the broader humanitarian community. You know. Um, related to the risk of, uh, you know, money laundering, um, uh, terrorist financing and and what have you. People don't know what to do if they don't know what the problem is, right? Um, and then lastly, you know, ethical codes of conduct, um, very detailed as I had referenced earlier, incident reporting systems. No one's trying to hide anything. Um, we're very transparent with our donors um, and, and with others around, um, you know, any kind of incident that may have happened um, related to money management. Um, Um, And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, institutional policies that are in line with international and domestic laws associated um, with uh, adhering to um, uh, compliance and regulatory frameworks um, that are uh, that are within um, different kind of donor donor governments. Um, So I'll I'll pause there, but there's, you know, I could I could go on and on about this topic um, because it's so important to our community.
0: Let me ask you two questions. One is it's obviously global, your challenges. So it's not just trying to navigate US regulatory requirements or expectations, which is something Andrea is now well familiar with given our work in the past five, six years. But you also have, uh, uh, I I see here, whistleblowing and complaint mechanisms. So just high level, how would that work? Because obviously, whistleblowing has become a big um, need. In general, that we've seen in a lot of other areas as well. So, is whistleblowing a situation where perhaps a specific charity wasn't being run the way it should have, and so somebody within the organization can report that as a complaint mechanism? So, walk us through that because that seems to be a, in addition to everything else you mentioned, uh, a big plus for the due diligence that is necessary so that financial institutions and certainly regulators can be much more comfortable with the relationships that we all we all want to
2: strive for. Absolutely, I'll cover um, internal complaint mechanisms and then I'd like to hand it over to Andrea okay. to talk about the whistleblower component because there's some legal um, aspects involved in that. Sure. So I mean, internal complaint mechanisms, right? Um, so there has been a significant um, investment in in-house and external legal counsel. Um, as well as risk um, enterprise risk management, and these oftentimes are standalone units. Um, that that um, sometimes they're integrated into programs and operations, and sometimes they're they're separate. Um, but you know, in practice, what would happen is um, you know a staff member or um, a, a program participant, you know, beneficiary program participant, um, you know, sees something, witnesses something, experiences something that is not right. Oh, um, you know, I saw uh, this you know, um, this cash go directly to this individual that I know is kind of, you know, quote unquote shady. Perhaps they're on a a sanctioned list or not, that the individual might not know, but they feel like something is wrong, right? So, you know, documenting that and then submitting that complaint internally for an investigation. And agencies take these types of internal complaints very, very seriously. And they have whole investigation teams that they will deploy to really examine an incident be it large or small. Um, so, there's that. Um, and I'll hand so, it over so that to- comes,
0: Sorry to interrupt. But yep. So, that comes from your your training. So, you're training people to look for things that could be, as we do in the Precisely. financial sector, potentially suspicious or, or at least uh, unusual based on the circumstances. So, that's, that's how they get that knowledge precisely to pass on that information
2: okay yeah precisely and one point here is i mean the the vast majority of um, humanitarian ngo staff working on the front lines are often local and national um, local and national actors right so they're they're people from the communities of the communities um you know they're they're leading human resources they're leading leading logistics they're leading finance um and so it's not you know necessarily yeah we educate you know the the leaders of organizations the leaders within country, but it's also about making these types of trainings and modules, you know, context-specific but very accessible for everyone. Um, And and that's really where we see a lot of successful outcomes.
0: That makes sense. So, do you want to reference the whistleblower uh, issue, Andrew, just high level?
1: Yeah, Katie's covered most of it there inherent in what she described, but I would add that it, along with that are protection mechanisms for the whistleblowers, so that they can be comfortable coming forward, knowing that there won't be retaliation or retribution, whether it's from within the organization itself or perhaps protection from other community members that might be, uh, you know, unsavory reactors.
0: Sure. Well, that makes sense. So let's shift gears and talk specifically about the licensing uh, from OFAC. But first... Uh, looking at your document, which again we will make available to uh, the viewers, but also anybody who accesses our website, we'll p- post this on LinkedIn. Uh, but back in re- reading from your document here, back in December, the U.S. became the first country to implement UN Security Resolution Two Six Six Four. We'll talk about how they did that. But can you tell us about the resolution? What is it? What is it designed to do? And then we'll talk specifically about the U.S. But uh, to the extent that you know the I'm sure you do, the countries that also have implemented some version of this. So that'd be nice to know, because, again, your your goals are global, so you need support outside the U.S. But So two things. What is that resolution? What was the genesis of it? I know you folks were strong advocates and worked hard on that. And then let's talk specifically about your great work with the Treasury, because they stepped up here. And, and obviously, that's the basis for what we're trying to get across today, that, that there can be success based on the work, because the goals, who's against these goals, right? Nobody. It's all about clarity. And and I think that's one of the areas, while it's simple, it's also complex. So with all that as the premise, the resolution, and then let's talk about how U.S. implemented it.
2: Well I can touch on the the resolution and then hand it over to Andrea okay. to talk about the U.S um, implementation. So um, uh, I will say that you know since Syria um, we've seen the the pace and kind of tempo of both humanitarian crises sudden onset emerge in heavily restricted environments increase and increase right? So you know there was Somalia and then Syria and that, you know, Afghanistan, Yemen, um, you know, even kind of Ukraine to an extent. So just the pace and tempo um, of sudden onset crises in these heavily sanctioned environments has just increased over time. Um, what we were dealing with was a very ad hoc approach to safeguards in these types of situations. That takes time, that takes money, that, you know, it, it oftentimes is, it can be quite confusing for everyone, the user, you know, the recipient and and what have you. And it also, at the end of the day, um, it deprives affected populations of humanitarian assistance they're entitled to because organizations are trying to figure out, okay, what is the problem? Do we have coverage? If not, what kind of coverage do we need? If we have coverage, where are the gaps? So you're you're pausing, right? You're pausing and you're trying to figure out the problem and what's needed. And that is, you know, can pause operations while, while this is happening. And so for years and years and years, um, the, the humanitarian community, particularly the NGO community, has been um, advocating, you know, essentially screaming at the top of our lungs, please help. Um, we need something that's more systemic, that's more sustainable, because no one can keep up with this ad hoc approach to uh, sanctions, safeguards, and and what have you. So um, very thankfully um, to the United States government and the Republic of Ireland for co-leading this effort, as you said, um, it materialized in December is the UN Security Council Resolution 2664. What that effectively does is apply a transverse um, humanitarian carve out across all current and future UN sanctions programs. There are a number of different provisions within that resolution that require that obligate states, UN member states, to implement those provisions in in their their domestic arena. That that Andrea um, will get to. But just to say, this was a this was a huge sea change. Um, and I think you know organizations um, have consistently provided evidence and analysis, evidence and analysis. Um, and we finally, again, thanks to the U.S. government and the Republic of Ireland got that transverse um, carve out. Now, it's not perfect. It doesn't it's not a panacea, but it is a huge step in the right direction towards streamlining um, and institutionalizing a lot of the uh, solutions to a lot of the problems that we've faced um, that have significantly impeded operations. Now, how has the U.S.
1: um, followed up on that? I'll, I'll turn that over to Andrea. Thanks, Katie. So, as you mentioned, you know, we've had these touch points over the years where we've had opportunity to engage on Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan. And with each iteration, we've seen some of the general licenses expand and be more responsive to the needs of NGOs. So um, I think that because the U.S. was champion, the Security Council resolution, they knew what was coming. They were already ha- they had some of this in the works. It was less than two weeks after the Security Council resolution was passed we saw this broad sweeping what they're referring to now as baseline general licenses so these cover 29 different sanctions regimes including both the specially designated global terrorist and the foreign terrorist organization designation um, context uh, these are in three main sets one for NGOs one for US government and their, and their grantees, and another for certain international organizations. And so they permit a wide range of humanitarian and non-commercial development work, anything from um, simply de- delivering food and, and nutrition supplements, to education, to environmental protection, um, democracy, and human rights work. And then much to our su- pleasant surprise, um, these licenses also included peace-building work. And so for the first time, we've seen a a broad um, exemption for that. Um, And so now we have in the U.S. either pre-existing or with these new licenses, brand new or updated authorizations that provide a humanitarian carve out um, in every single U.S. sanctions regime. And of course, these brand new baseline licenses provide these additional authorizations for the non-commercial development and the peacebuilding work as well.
0: That's great, Um, Andrew. I think you know this. I'm involved. My alma mater, Marquette University's got a Center for Peacemaking, and they do extensive amounts of work overseas, and I'm not. Hopefully they are aware of these exceptions because I know they've been. I don't know they've been in conflict zones, but they definitely have been in areas of need. So that's that's important. So uh, go going back. This is excellent. Uh, The 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 couple page description, the FAQs that you guys have created certainly spell this out, but. From your perspective, as advocates, what do you think turned, I don't want to say turned Treasury around? Because they were always willing to listen. Various administrations didn't really matter. You know, we always were able to get staff to sit down, and you you folks had to do it a lot more than we did. What was besides the resolution itself? Obviously, the US helped get that through. What 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 were the key issues? Is it just the amount of uh challenges in conflict areas that Se- seemingly become more and more prevalent w- what was your take on it i know it was much more complicated than one reason but maybe give us some of the reasons that they were able to to do this because obviously this is a it's a great model for an awful problem let's put it that way right
1: if there's a positive term that's the equivalent of a perfect storm, that's, I think, what's happened here. And so we've had, like I said, a number of engagements, as you mentioned, increasing conflict, increasing crises. You've got a situation like Syria, where you've had a war for 10 years. And then on top of that, this unbelievably devastating earthquake, misery upon misery. Um, and so it's really front and center for a lot of Americans to see the devastation and, and the suffering that's going on around the world and not be moved to do something about it. Um, Certainly with the Yemen context, when when the Houthis were designated as a foreign terrorist organization, that provided a great opportunity for engagement. I think Treasury was very motivated at that point to issue a broad swath of licenses that were in effect until that designation was reversed. And then again, when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, they realized, you know, again, you've got a designated organization as the de facto government. And what we're seeing with the the newer licenses and, and including these baseline licenses are explicitly authorizing transactions for purchases of taxes, fees, import duties, um, public utility services, those types of things that you normally have to get from the government, whoever they may be, in order to access the population in need. And so when the the current administration um, came into the White House, uh, Janet Yellen, the new Secretary of Treasury, ordered a top-down uh, review of all sanctions programs. It was during COVID, so there was another sanctions review related to COVID and the ability for NGOs to to respond places like India and others that were having you know huge outbreaks, even more so than the U.S. Um, and so it was a lot of those factors coming together in what was whatever the perfect storm equivalent is. Yeah,
2: if I may go add, yeah, um, Katie, if, if I may add to, I yeah. mean, from an operational standpoint, um, you know, what this one of the one of uh, in terms of our understanding, one of the intentions behind. And again, this, there were a myriad of, of reasons, um, you know, behind the the issuance of the December general licenses um, was to look, was to minimize or mitigate the problem that I referenced earlier, which was uh, a stop in operations or pause in opera- operations, right? So this really helps with that operation. Operational continuity. Um, And and so organizations can feel safe um, that they can continue to operate um, when new sanctions or designations come down. Um, Because when there is a pause in operations, um, that's not, you know of our you know when I say our I say the NGO community humanitarian community the communities you know that we're serving you know when there's not a collective agreement that a program is no longer necessary that can result in um in in repercussions that run significantly counter to US foreign policy objectives to the objectives of humanitarian actors it can you know increase tension between communities and and aid workers it can hamper access negotiations we uh, you know we dialogue with everyone um, you know, around around access. And, you know, you, it oftentimes can spend months and months, years and years trying to develop a rapport with a particular individual that, you know, is the one, that, that is the, the gatekeeper, you know, to this particular geography where there are significant needs. So, you know, you can only imagine all of a sudden, um, you know, a new sanction designation comes down before the December GLs. We would have had to, you know, hands off. Okay, well, we need to cancel that coffee with that, you know, with that guy that we've you know, spent months and months and months trying to develop a relationship with so we could have an actual discussion around access. So just to say, you know, the, the December GLs have really helped um, ensure continuity of operations um, in these types of contexts and that, you know, we're starting to slowly see um, the, the positive benefit um, of that as it relates to reach, um, reaching affected populations wherever they're at.
0: I want to have both you guys back at some point because it's only been December. It's almost May, so obviously there's not a lot of uh, examples yet of how effective this has been. But just what you've just described, um, it, it's you know a nas- nascent changes with the general licenses. Uh, your document talks about the fact that it's still not there's still not standardization, so you're still looking for that. But without uh, not asking you to be critical, but are the changes with the general licenses. What other things in that space, I know there's a broader issue of bro- broader de-risking, but what other things are you hoping uh, Treasury will come back and look at uh, in, in in due time? Again, really, really compliment them on what they've been able to do. Obviously, you want to get that outreach. That's why we're doing this program, so that our community better understands what you folks know. But w- what else are you still looking for on the licensing side? And then I'll ask you a broader question about de-risking going forward.
1: Well, as you mentioned, John, uh, we've taken an enormous step forward in terms of trying to reach standardization. We're not there yet. So, for example, Syria, you've got designated groups in the Northwest, and they're operating now under these wonderful new general licenses that were in December. And the other side of this line, you've got the government of Syria, very comprehensive sanctions. Um, and th- there were authorizations in place before last December. And then with General License 23, shortly after the earthquake hit there to help um, all parties involved, whether it be NGOs or private entities that they need to rely on, such as financial institutions, shippers suppliers, et cetera, um, to help make sure that aid gets to where it needs to be. The work we're doing now to help sort of complement this is looking at, for example, can we get um, some sort of written assurance from the Department of Justice that they won't prosecute under the material support statute, when there is an entity operating under a valid OFAC license. They've told us orally that it's not a a priority for prosecution. We'd really like to see that in writing. I think it would make everyone more comfortable um, with the licenses that some entities need to get from the Department of Commerce for any export or re-export items going. Um, We would like to see those licenses expedited or perhaps even a standing authorization from commerce that would mirror what Treasury has done. That makes
0: sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Oh. Go ahead, Katie. Yeah, I mean,
2: and if I may add, um, you know, as well, kind of uh, backing, zooming out to one of the points that you referenced a bit earlier, John is, you know, the U.S. has taken significant strides to implement the the spirit of the um, UN Security Council in their domestic context, and the U.K. Um, and the EU and some other UN member states have followed suit. But what we really need to see is all UN member states um, you follow the the example of the U.S. government. And again, sure, nothing. Andrea has just. Covered um, some of the gaps and some of the stuff that we still would like to see, um, but we need all UN member states to 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 move forward and domesticate this within their within their um, domestic arenas, um, and that means compliance with the UN Security Council resolution, not. Over compliance, um, which could potentially be a tool, um, you know, by various actors to target civil society, um, in the you know, in the context of security operations and in heavily restricted environments. But we also do not want to see under compliance, which would be, you know, member states. Um, uh, leaving significant gaps um, in kind of how they they domesticate the UN Security Council Resolution 2664. So that's more of a global um, perspective. And Andrea, you know, I think you did such a good job just explaining the, the US and kind of where we still need to go here.
0: This has been tremendous. Um, we will continue to follow this closely. And also, uh, as you uh, become aware of new opportunities and projects, please let us know, but I'll, I'll get you both out of here on this. Uh, start with you, Andrea. Uh, one of the things, again, that we mentioned that we've both been working on is the broader issue of de-risking. Uh, we know that the AMLO law signed back or, or implemented back in uh, or enacted back in uh, 2021 because it wasn't signed, um, uh, has a requirement that the Treasury do a de-risking strategy. So we're not aware that that's progressing at all. I think in large part, and I've done other interviews with other folks, FinCEN doesn't have a, a, a full time director and, and you know, resources. They got to get the beneficial ownership registry done. But uh, is there an opportunity that you're aware of? Because I'm not, but if you are, please let me know where our community can, besides saying we want to see this strategy, provide more um, support or advocacy for that to move. So have you had any conversations in the past? couple of months on that? What's the la- What's the last piece of information you have on that? Because I haven't in a while.
1: So building on um, the, the stakeholder dialogue that we had in 2017-2018, periodically these groups of stakeholders have the opportunity to come together again. Um, there was another iteration that happened um, 2021 until about October of last year. Um, they're trying to get funding, is my understanding, to have yet another i think it's important to continue to keep these communication channels open whatever the forum is whatever the venue um there are changing needs within the ngo community i can only imagine that the financial services industry has changing needs as well and so to be able to communicate with each other and um and then relay that to government at, as far as um what those remaining gaps might be and what's needed i think is key so any opportunity
0: for these groups
1: to talk to each other
0: is perfect yeah, we got to we got to stay together. Uh, Katie, I'll, um, I'll end with you. I'd love at some point to talk to you about how you were able to carry cash across conflict areas without telling us how you did it, because that had to be amazing. That That's for a future future podcast. We'll talk about that part of your career. But what else from what you've been involved in should our the AML community take from this besides the, all the obvious things that both of you have mentioned? What else do you want us to hang on to and say, hey, this gives me some additional information. I got the two pager. I know what the licenses are. What what else does our community need to know about the challenges that you folks face?
2: Well, I think, I mean, Andrea Andrea pointed to it, right? It's it's dialogue. Um, It's ongoing and very transparent dialogue. We're all coming, you know, you have the NGOs, you have government, you have financial institutions, you have other actors, everyone speaks different languages. You know, quote unquote, every, you know, everyone has their own set of acronyms that no one really understands. Um, But everyone's coming at this from from different perspectives. And um, we're only starting to kind of crack that nut of, okay, I'm starting to understand your language. I'm starting to understand your language. Here's my language. And so to really be working and dialoguing transparently together around the challenges that each, you know, kind of stakeholder group experiences and why. Um, and how you know we can all be working together to foster greater understanding, greater transparency. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is all about making sure taxpayer and other, you know, donor governments, taxpayer dollars get, uh, you know, efficiently and effectively um, into um, programs as defined by affected populations in need worldwide. Um, So it's, it's that common analysis of the problem. It's that common understanding, that common dialogue and willingness to really take a look you know, for example, for the NGOs to look at themselves, right? Take a really close look at at how we communicate, what we share, what we don't share and think about, okay, well, what do we need to change in order to, you know, help um, a different stakeholder group understand and vice versa. So that's really what, you know, that's what I would say. I think we have the the, the beginnings of that going. Thanks a lot to John, your efforts, the, the ongoing efforts in the United States and in the UK. There's a number of multi-stakeholder dialogues, um, but it's really, you know, uh, uh, coalescing around the common problem, common language, common understanding, common solutions.
0: That makes sense. Andrea, I know you want, you I, want to say something else. Go ahead. I just
1: wanted to add. Um, Given where we are now and the huge strides we've made, I think that the takeaway is that financial institutions should be really comfortable um, operationalizing these new licenses. Um, They do provide for a broad swath of activity and the transactions that go along with that. Treasury is trying to do its best in getting out to the community and doing some educational visits to make um, organizations really feel comfortable with them.
0: That's great. And uh, we'll do the same with, with this program. I want to thank uh, Katie and Andrea from Interaction. Take a look, folks, interaction.org. Uh, the um, uh, FAQs, which we'll have on our site, are there too. Blogs that they have written and updates that they produce on a regular basis. It's really important. I know that our community cares about the the need for clarity here because many institutions do want to provide access or continue to provide access for a variety of charities, managerial groups, both global and domestic. So as we, as you just have both said, better understanding one another will make that uh, both easier and transparent. And I think this is a, a great goal. So thanks to both of you. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks, John. Thanks, John.